If you want, you can grab that Bible that you took from home or from the seat next to you and turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. We're continuing on in our series on shalom and pursuing God's shalom in our lives. We've been looking in a couple different areas. Uh, we started out looking at uh, shalom in our relationships, both relationship with God and relationships with others. Then we're moving into where we are right now with looking at God's shalom in creation and in our relationship to creation. And then next uh, week, actually, we'll start uh, the third sub, uh, the sub, third component of this series where we're looking at God's shalom in culture. And so, uh, yeah, we've been walking through, like, where's God's shalom? What does shalom even look like is in our relationship with creation? It's been a really fun series, and one of the things that it's done for me is... It's reminded me how earthy the Bible is, right? So, so often we think of religion or spirituality, and we tend to think of it as ethereal and, you know, sort of theoretical or, or you know, it's about life after death. But as we've read through these texts, and I think as you'll see today, like, our Bible is earthy. Even the songs that we've been singing the last couple of weeks have really shown this rich history within the Christian tradition of how how uh, terrestrial our faith is, that it really is for this life and this place, this earth, uh, and, and, and that so much of that informs our faith, which I just think is wonderful. It's been uh, both refreshing and surprising for me as we've walked through this, just how concerned the Bible is with our relationship with crea- uh, the rest of creation. And so we'll get into that a little bit more this morning, uh, but let me pray for our time in the scriptures and uh, our reflection. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So last week... uh, I made two claims in regards to our relationship with creation and the created order around us. And I just want to remind us of those two claims. Number one is that, first and foremost, you and I are creatures. So yes, we've been created in the image of God. Yes, we bear a unique likeness to God. Yes, we have unique abilities uh, that God has given to us. And because of those unique abilities, we have a special responsibility to steward the world around us and have dominion over creation. Yes and amen to all of that. But primarily, we are creatures. We eat, we sleep, we die, we return to dust. And in this manner, because we do these things, we are more like the creatures, the animals around us, than we are like God. And we have to remember that. First and foremost, you and I are creatures. We're not demigods. We're not somehow separate from the rest of creation. This is, we are a part of the created order. We are creatures. Second, In order for us to fully understand our relationship with creation, or in other words, in order for us to to live out our call to be in shalom, in harmony with the rest of creation, we have to root ourselves in the story that we have been written into. 
And we talked about it just a little bit last week. We talked just a little bit about the story that God is writing, the story of creation, the story of God's redemption and restoration. But this week, I want to dive deeper into that in the hopes that as we understand the story and we understand our place in the story, we begin to think and imagine new ways for, ima- uh, for how we relate to creation. And so I'll just be upfront with you. I'm not going to give a lot of practical steps. I'm not going to say, like, this is in the end how we should relate to creation. I'm going to let us as a collective body over time figure out what that means. What I want to do this morning is I want to start a conversation by rooting us and reminding us of the story. And so we're going to do something ambitious this morning. We're going to almost do an entire biblical survey. We're going to start in Genesis, work our way to Revelation, and then kind of come back. So get some coffee. Yes, we have communion. It uh, could be a little bit like, oh man, yeah, it's going to be a long one. I think I'm going to be able to do this relatively quickly, but we're going to have to, we're going we're gonna to clip along here, and that's my goal, and it's an ambitious goal. But my hope is, again, this will remind us of the story, spur our man- imaginations, and begin a conversation of what it means to be in right relationship with God's creation. So, let's go. Genesis chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination and thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, And the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, after Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, we know that Genesis 3 happened and sin occurred. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and as a result, sin enters the world. Right relationships are broken. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, and death enters into the natural order. Things spiral out of control very quickly from here. It only takes us three chapters to go from the first sin to God regretting that he had made humanity. Right? And the reason that God regrets that he made humanity is because of the evil inclinations of the human heart. The Bible goes so far as to say that every thought we had was wicked. And if you, if you want to see how full it is, this is really interesting. Look at verse 11. Jump down to verse 11 real quick. It says this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. Now that last phrase, full of violence. One of the things that happens in Scripture is writers will use small little phrases and sometimes even a word to, to, to sort of spark our memories and go, wait, wait, that reminds me of or that sounds like. So in Genesis 6... Four chapters after we're given, five chapters, four or five chapters, depending on if you're reading Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, you have this language of full of violence. Does that remind you of anything? What it might remind you of is God's call to both the creatures and to humanity. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. So creatures in humanity were charged from the very beginning to fill the earth with their offspring to fill their earth with a good created order, to fill their earth with right relationships. But sin enters the world, and what do we end up filling the earth with? Violence. 
In three short chapters, the earth is filled, but it's filled with violence. God's original mandate has been twisted and perverted. And as a result, God decides that he's going to blot out not just humanity, but all of living, all of the living creatures. Who are the ones that are, we are told are sinful? Who are the ones that are wicked? Who are the ones that God is upset with? Humans, you and I. Who suffers? Who is going to be blotted out as a result of that? All living creatures. Like, if this doesn't make you sit up and think about the seriousness of sin, like, I just, I don't know what will. Sin doesn't just impact the individual. Sin doesn't just impact relationships. Sin doesn't just impact families. Sin doesn't just impact governments. Sin impacts all of creation. Moral order and natural order are intimately connected. When the moral order falls apart, all of creation is impacted. All of creation is subjected to the effects of sin. All of creation experiences corruption and decay. All of creation. Walter Brueggemann says it like this. Covenantal Israel held the staggering notion that human conduct matters for the well-being of creation. In other words, when you and I are living according to God's design, when we are living according to God's commands, all of creation flourishes, or at least it should. But when we fall out of that, when we live in disobedience, when we're breaking the commands, when we are sinful, all of creation suffers. This is perhaps what Paul was getting at in Romans when he said that all of creation was mourning and groaning as it awaits the liberation that will come when the children of God are finally revealed. Until that time, until the final reveal, not gender reveal, but the final reveal of God's children, creation will continue to be subjected to the effects of sin. And the story of Noah is not just the only place that we see this. If you want, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 12. I've had the page numbers up here, but it's sometimes fun to turn through the Bible and see it for yourself. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 4. Hear the prophet, how long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked, the animals and the birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he, God, will not see what happens to us. So notice, the land mourns, the grass withers, the animals and the birds perish. Why? Because of the wicked people that live in the land. The wickedness of humanity affects the creation. Moral order impacts natural order. Turn me a little bit further to the right. Hosea. Hosea chapter 4.
Hosea chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of all of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. So, so this one is fascinating to me. It's worth noting here that, the, that Hosea starts out, and he starts out acknowledging the wickedness, and he starts to list particular things that the Israelites are doing. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, bloodshed that follows bloodshed. And what we think is like, so often we consider sin, we say, okay, these sins affect the individual. It's so clear to see that. We don't have to really make that case. And we don't even have to make the case that these sins affect relationships or they reflect how people get along with each other or how they lead to wars and, and enemies and all that. Like, we don't have to, to, to think hard or imagine that. But so often we simply consider, well, that's where sin ends. But look at this, it's cursing, lying, stealing, adultery, murder. And what is the result of that? The land mourns, and all who live in the land languish, including the wild animals, including the livestock, including the birds, and even the fish of the sea. Again, Richard Baucom, New Testament uh, theologian in, uh, at St. Andrews, says this, the destructive effect, even on the creatures of the sea, seems extraordinarily hyperbolic. But this is an example of a phenomenon we find in other cases in biblical prophecy. What can only seem grossly hyperbolic in its original context looks only too realistic in the context of our own situation of worldwide ecological catastrophe. We have to be honest and tell the truth about the effect of our sin. And far too often we pretend that humans are, humans are separate from creation, and not just us, but even our sin and its impact is separate from having any consequence on the rest of the created order. Right? And we do that in a couple of different ways. We may brush off the idea that, sin, that our sin and or that humans could have any kind of real impact on the created order because the earth and, and the created order itself is so vast, it's so big. Like There's no way that we could constantly have that kind of broad impact on the whole of created order. Or we simply compartmentalize it and say, well, yeah, yeah, that's some like old-timey ancient superstition that says that our sin has an impact on land, but we know that that's not how weather works, and we know that's not how, the, how, the, how systems work. We, we, we just know that our sin is relegated to the, to the area or to the realm of human interactions. But if we're going to be if we're going to be biblical, if we're going to wrestle with the biblical text and what the biblical text is saying, then it's very clear, and these aren't the only passages, but it's very clear that the Bible is saying that the things that we do, even the things that we do to one another, have a broad and wide-reaching impact on the world around us. Our actions negatively impact the world. It, and, and to deny that is to deny something very important. Jeremiah, 
The prophet in chapter 8 says this, Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Other scriptures, other uh, versions say, my people do not know the ordinances. What this is getting at is when we deny that our sin is impacting creation around us in negative ways, we are denying the order that God has created the world with. He's denying the connection that we inherently all share as creatures. Denying that we are placed in this world and have impact on it. But even the birds get this. Even the birds understand God's natural order. Even the birds understand how God has created things. And so we have to... We have to recognize the, the profundity of our sin. At its core, human sin is disorderly. Human sin rolls back the order with which God created. It introduces chaos into the world where God took what was chaos, the tohu vavohu, and brought order to it so that there was the water and the land, and the water could go no further, where was the separation between the water and the skies, where there was land, creatures on the land and there were creatures in the sea, where there was order, sin disrupts it. Where there was harmony, sin brings discord. Where there was rhythm, sin, well, it does the opposite of whatever rhythm is. I can't think of that right now. Is a Dutch guy playing the drums. How's that? <laughs> and throughout Scripture, from Genesis, through the prophets, into the New Testament, we are told again and again that the non-human world suffers because of human sin. This is how, how impactful, how deep, how profound how wide-reaching, how significant sin is. And if this was the last word, I don't think there would be anything else other, for us to do other than to despair. But thankfully, this is not the last word. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. Starting at verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. If you had your own Bibles, if you have your own Bibles, I'll tell you, underline the word will. I emphasized it every time I said it there, but it kept showing up again and again and again in these two verses. Why? Because this entire section is forward-looking. It's future tense. The wilderness will be glad. The desert will rejoice one day. Creation one day will be restored and it will rejoice because the glory of the Lord and the majesty of God will be seen by all. And when 
the glory of God is revealed to all, and when we unmistakably cannot deny that it exists, it is before us, all of creation will be restored. That which is desolate will now become filled with beauty. Yeah. Paul builds on this idea in Romans chapter 8, 19 and through 21. He says this, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You you get this sense, right, that all of creation, it's hoping, it's longing, it's looking forward. And, and, and I'll be honest that I, I can't read these passages, and particularly this one, without feeling a sense of community with the creation itself. Again, far too often we set ourselves apart from or above creation. It's as if our ability to have conscious, rational thought makes us resistant to the idea that we belong to the created order, so we place ourselves outside of it. But everything we've said about creation this morning is something I can relate to. As much as creation feels the effects of human sin, so do I. Right? I'm guessing you do as well. I can look at my life and I can see the impact that sin has had on myself. I can see the impact that sin has had on my relationships. I can see how my sin brings corruption to good things. I can see how my choices contribute to the darkness that exists in the world. I can see how my selfish ambition taints my relationships. I can see how unnecessary competition can drive wedges between me and others. I, I feel the impact, the negative impact of my sin, just like creation does. And, and when I stop to truly consider just how significant the impact of sin is on my life, I, like the rest of creation, mourn. Like the rest of creation, I cry out to God that God would save me from this, that God would deliver me from this, that there would be a hope for the future, future day, right? Just like creation, I long for the day in which God's restoration comes. Just like creation, I long for the day in which corruption and decay are rolled back and the restoration that is promised in the prophets is, is, is realized, like there's this sense in which as I consider my sin, com- hope overtakes me and compels me to, with the rest of creation, look forward. And what's fascinating here is having conscious, rational thought is not the thing that drives my hope. And in a biblical sense, because look at even creation, even the animals, the land, who does not have conscious, rational thought. They hope. It's a part of, of being a creature. It's a part of having the residual uh, material 
of God's good creation in us. It's like all of creation can remember that time in which Siloam existed, that remember that time in which the world was exactly the way that it was supposed to. And so all of us who have this residual goodness in us cry out to God for its restoration. We hope, not as individuals or not as one species, but we hope as a community of creatures for the restoration that will one day be brought about by the Creator. We, we as a community of creatures anticipate that day in the future that John saw in his revelation. Do you remember what John saw in his revelation? He says this. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels. They were numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the entire throne and the four living creatures and the elders. The angels cried out in a loud voice, Worthy is the one who was slain of all power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And, and then I heard, I heard every creature that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the seas and all that is in them. And they said, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be all honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. And the four living creatures shouted, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshipped. This... This is the hope of our community of creatures. That the Lamb who sits on the throne would be realized. That every creature would see it. That every tongue would profess it. And that together we would all proclaim His goodness, His power, His worthiness, His blessing, His honor, and His glory because He is the one who saves. He is the one who restores we are a part of this community. We are the ones who are on the earth with all the others. And together we're all proclaimed with one voice. And there's something powerful that happens when we reflect on this community of creatures that we belong to. If you want, you can turn with me to Psalm chapter 104. It's a little bit of a long psalm, but I'm going to read the whole thing because I think it's worth reflecting on. Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. 
He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. You never again, or never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for the people to cultivate, bringing food forth from the earth, wine that gladdens humans heart, human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers, the high mountains belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to, the, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May the meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Now, this psalm is it's a couple of things. It's One, it's a retelling of Genesis 1 and 2. And it's also sort of this re retelling of Job chapters 38 and 39. But its ultimate focus is this retelling of the generous extravagance of God as God provides for the creation. The psalmist marvels at the diversity and the abundance of creation and, and recognizes that that diversity and abundance is itself a reflection of of who God is and what God is like. God is the creator and God is the provider, the sustainer of all of this. It is God who provides life, but not just life, water, food, habitat, times and season, and joy. All of these are what God provides within this psalm. 
And what's fascinating is, is as much as all of that is dependent on God, the creatures in the psalm also are seen to have agency. So God's providing food, and God's providing habitat, and God's providing joy, and the birds build nests. Leviathan frolics out in the oceans. Humans build ships and houses and work the land, and they sail on the waters. And as the psalmist reflects on the vastness and the wonder and the beauty and the abundance of creation, did you catch what began to happen within the psalmist's heart? Over the last couple of stanzas, their attention turns even more so to God. The last couple of refrains are all about the glory and the praise that is due God because of his good creation. And then at the very end, it shifts again. It's almost like it's tacked on at the end. Let the sinners be consumed by the earth. Right? Like out of nowhere all of a sudden, like all of this thing, for verse after verse, it's just talking about creation and wonder and beauty and the goodness, and then all of a sudden, like, let sinners be cast away. Well, it just raises this question, who are the sinners and what is their relationship to the rest of this psalm? Again, I think Walter Brueggemann is really helpful here. He says this, Those who refuse, refuse to receive life in creation on terms of generous extravagance, no doubt in order to practice a hoarding autonomy and denial uh, that creation is indeed governed and held by its creator. That that's who sinners are. Sinners are the ones who deny that, that God is governing this. Sinners are the ones who deny the extreme generosity that is evidenced in the created order and begin to hoard it for ourselves. This is ours. We don't, we don't aren't that connected to the rest of creation. It is for our use and for our use alone. They serve us. It's ours to do with as we want. And in this way, the sinner steps outside of the created order and begins to lord over creation. It begins to pervert the dominion that God has entrusted to humanity. They begin to gloss over the importance of creation, the, the, the co-creatureliness of the rest of creation, and they be, fail to appreciate it as a gift. And in doing so, the shalom that God intended begins to fall apart. Instead, the psalmist gives us a picture of what our role is to be. Gives us a picture of maybe what stewardship looks like. Gives us a picture of even what restoring shalom looks like or what the first step might be. And it's simply to recognize the gift of creation. The extravagant generosity that God has given to its creation. And as we recognize and wonder at its beauty, at its complexity at the surprise of it, as we begin to see our fellow creatures as co-worshippers, co our hearts are turned to worship God. 
And as we turn to worship God, we enter into a more right relationship with God. And as we are in more right relationship with God, we have a better relationship with creatures. And now we're in this beautiful cycle. I think if we go back to where we began, we actually see a picture of what this looks like in Noah himself. Wickedness covers the earth. God is upset at the destruction and the violence that it is bringing and so promises to blot it all out. But God sees one righteous man, a man who is in right relationship with God. And God says, okay, I'm not going to start over completely. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to save this one family and through this one family, we're going to repopulate the earth. But this one man who rightly worships me is going to do what? He's going to also save all of the other creatures. He's going to build a habitat for them. He's going to protect them. He's going to ensure that they continue to live on. This one man who rightly worships me will be the one who also, for this time, has a right relationship with the creation. And there's almost like, as the chaos of the waters pelting the earth and the storm coming and the waters rising, the chaos outside of the boat, the boat itself becomes a new kind of Eden. Why? Because Noah worshipped God. And perhaps for us, when we talk about shalom with creation, we do recognize that it starts with our right worship of God, but that right worship of God also leads us to a right concern for creation. And as we recognize the beauty and the wonder of creation, we, together with creation, lift up our voices in worship. As God intended it. Shalom. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the wonder of creation around us. And this time of year is a year or is a is a time in which it's easy for us to look out our windows and see the beauty. We see the leaves changing color. We see, the <laughs> we see these colors that remind us that these, these bushes are almost as if they're on fire. And yet they are not consumed. They look as if they are dying. But we know they will not die. It's a picture of so many different biblical stories. It's a reminder of the gospel. And as we take in the beauty around us, we, we are brought to praise, to worship you. May we, creatures on this earth that you have created, may we seek to live in right relationships with the rest of the world around us, and may we seek to join with all the creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and bringing you all honor, glory, and power. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.